Welcome to the Atlas Air Guns podcast. On this episode, we talk to Eric Mayer, who is the editor, publisher, and founder of the esteemed Varminter magazine. We discuss a variety of topics, including the ecology of varmints, the history of Varminter magazine, and air gun hunting in Idaho. If you like hunting varmints, this episode's for you. I started Varmint around uh, 1997, so however many years that is, 22, 23. It's kind of like the advent of the internet back then. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, at the time, it was funny because uh, when we had the website, a friend of mine and I, we started a few different ones. I was really big into waterfowl hunting, too. And we, well, he, I didn't have anything to do with it, but he literally had to build our forum from scratch. Um so we had a forum that matched some of the other ones that were out there, but were way out of reach as far as uh, being able to afford it and have the platform going. So that worked until technology caught up and then we were able to jump on some other ones. Yeah, 1997 is kind of like, uh, well, I guess that's Internet 1.0 versus 2.0 if you follow that kind of stuff. Yeah, and uh, it was it was tough back then because there was no real way to keep spammers or in our case animal rights people off of our site and i actually got shut down in 99 by an animal rights guy out of canada who just spanned our forums with porn and things like that and i had to shut it down and my last words to everybody was take this time to go out and do as much killing as you can in this guy's name and uh we'll be back and so while i was waiting for technology to catch up I went after him, found out where he worked. You know, back then you could search people out a lot easier and found out where he worked, had information about his boss, got everything to him and got him terminated. So, yeah, because he was using company time. Cancel the cancelers, you know. Exactly. Um, so you've ran into that problem a few times, though. Oh, yeah, I get it um, all the time. I mean, we get animal rights people sending death threats and everything. When I lived in Los Angeles, uh, I only moved to Idaho in 2016, but when I lived in Los Angeles, it was actually kind of scary because there would be times when people would send pictures of the front of my house and stuff like that. Um, but here, no worries. Everybody loves the fact that I do this. So I'm here with my people up in Idaho. Yeah. So it's nice. I mean, I just don't know where someone's coming from morally if they're threatening someone's life in the name of a living creature that's substantially less worthy um, on a moral level than a human being. That's just, I don't know, that's, that's crazy. Oh, yeah. They, they go into directions that are completely opposite of what they say they believe in. I mean, um, a couple here, Justin and Katie Small, um, they're wolf hunters and stuff like that. And after they posted pictures of some wolves they got in Montana, uh, they were inundated and it hit the papers. I'm assuming the trash papers over in the UK. And I mean, there were people wanting to kill their baby and all this stuff like that. It was just absolutely ridiculous. But a lot of that um, got me into, and we, we haven't needed to use it, but we started something called In Your Name. And it kind of, you know, goes back to the original when I made that statement that if we get an animal rights person who goes after us or, you know, goes after our children or family members, things like that, then we just up our game. And like I say online, we spend a little bit more time out in the field. We maybe, uh, you know, hunt a little harder and anything we get extra is due to them, you know, doing what they do until they apologize and to date i've only had one person not apologize but he disappeared pretty quickly and so was that the incipient event that got you to go to idaho in the first place um no it's just the laws in california um being that we do a lot of reviews of ammunition and rifles and ar-15s and things like that and we use those in hunting 
I saw the writing on the wall um, that California was going to shut that stuff down. It was hard enough hunting in California with the lead-free, what they call the condor zone, um, before the whole state went lead-free. Um, finding places to hunt that where I was using lead ammo, I had to be outside of that condor zone. And from where I lived, that was a two and a half hour drive one way to get up to some farms that we had permission so we could use lead ammo and test them and write about them. So that was just the beginning, but all the politics in California are just a mess and the economy is a mess. And Idaho is, is excellent. But unfortunately, after I got here, uh, they put signs up that they're full. So for anybody thinking about coming here, I apologize. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. I feel I feel bad for all these other states that uh, they're getting just inundated by the mass exodus of Californians. The only good side of that is that a lot of these states are actually getting a lot of their beliefs affirmed rather than um, diluted because a lot of these people leaving California do have an ideological bend that is a little more towards what they've traditionally or value at least yes and i mean we've seen that here in idaho that i've seen that um, our percentages when voting for certain parties have actually grown since i moved here as opposed to you know people fearing that we're going to lose that hold however you know just like anywhere else any other state the big cities um the population areas that have universities have become the opposite they've gone more liberal and you know clamp down on guns and things like that but um, thankfully in what i do you know one of my things with barner magazine is i try to stay out of politics i want i mean well let me step back i personally am very involved in politics in california i worked with the calguns foundation um, firearms policy coalition we did a lot of stuff for them in the background um, you know as well as my own personal businesses that I owned at the time, printing and things like that. We, we just did everything we could to help them. Um, but I keep it out of Armour because I want it to be a place where people can go and kind of forget about all that stuff. I mean, you're getting inundated constantly everywhere, and I participate in a lot of that stuff elsewhere. But I want Armour to be that, that place where people can go and just talk about hunting and think about hunting and watch videos about hunting. So... So that sounds like a good transition to my next question, which is what is like the, I guess the mission that you have with Varmeter Mag and what's kind of the ethos that you've built there? Because it's a, it's a recognizable business that I, I've seen for years now. And I guess I don't know a lot of the background. So if you could describe that for the guests. Well, basically, um, back in 1997, I was, you know, I've been a Varma hunter my life, my whole life. I got my first Daisy 880, you know, at 14. My mom was anti-gun, you know, anti-anything like that. But getting an air gun was a lot easier to get into the house, you know, than a firearm, obviously, because I was 14 years old. But, um, you know, that transitioned to me being really involved in varmint hunting. Because in Southern California, other than up in the game birds, the, the thing you go after is rabbits and ground squirrels um, with anything. So as I got older and I belonged to the Barma Hunter magazine, um, they've since gone out of business uh, in the Barma Hunter Association. Their magazine began with just excellent information that was submitted by people who actually read the magazine. Later on, around 1997, early 1997, they hired on some writers that just were not telling the truth. I mean, I, I've been around guns long enough, even back then, to know that not everything shoots, you know, sub half MOA. And there's got to be some things that, you know, are affecting their writing. And I don't want to assume, but I assume <laughs> uh, that some of it had to do with advertising and such. So I decided, listen, I'm going to start my own. I'm going to be online only, um, which back then was crazy. Everybody was telling me I was nuts. But since then, every magazine that I belong to, uh, Barma Hunter Magazine, Precision Shooter, uh, Small Caliber News, you know, all of those have gone away. And um, we try to keep things where it's educational. Um, 
I understand that there's always new shooters and new hunters. And although we get technical on some of the stuff, a lot of stuff is just going out and just kind of giving information that most of us older hunters, or when I say older, I mean people who've been doing it for a while, we know this information already. But then there's people out there just afraid to ask, especially on social media. Uh, Facebook is notorious for, you know, either you ask a question and get bombarded by people who just treat you like you're dumb, or it's filled with just wrong information. And unfortunately, that's social media nowadays. People don't sit and really use critical thinking to come up with a good response to folks who are asking questions that, you know, could potentially harm them or, you know, could potentially do something that turns them off to hunting and shooting altogether. So we get in there and we try to have fun. At the same time, you know, we do like to give information that is uh, educational, you know, and, and try to put as much out there and answer as many questions as I can. And, you know, to my whole Facebook, and I'm not, I'm not disparaging the Facebook platform and how it works, because there are lots of guys on there and gals who are just excellent with information. And they try really hard to just do the same kind of thing, educate and help people move forward. And, you know, I think that's a great platform, but at the same time, I get a lot of messages privately. I mean, it, it's probably three or four nights a week I'm on the phone with people who are just asking me questions, who don't want to post it up, who don't want to discuss it, and basically coming to me and saying, what's your thoughts on this? And I'm not the end-all, be-all when it comes to knowledge. You know, I'm always learning. There's always new stuff that I pick up that I appreciate. You know, I follow a lot of YouTube channels that I watch, and I think they're excellent. You know, I watch some of these guys out there that are hunting, you know, air guns is a, the big thing on, on that. I learn a lot of stuff from the air gun guys out there because air guns, although it's important in my life, you know, and how I hunt and stuff like that, it only takes a small percentage of what we do on Barber Magazine. And we're trying to change that. We're trying to add more because I just believe air guns and air gun hunting is the future for a lot of people in a lot of areas who are more urban, you know, they maybe have small patches of areas that they can hunt, but they can't use firearms. So that's something where, you know, I educate myself, but getting back to where we are, I mean, kind of, we, we used to put up a statement or I used to put up a statement hashtags that, you know, were unabashed and unabashed came from actually a time magazine, time.com article that, happened a few years ago where we were asked to participate where a writer was basically saying, listen, we're going to write on, you know, the animals that people hunt with AR-15s. I said, great. That's right up my alley, you know, cause I am a big AR-15, AR-10 fan. Um, I think they're a great versatile weapon for hunting. And I think just the, the fact that you can turn these into anything you need, you know, changing butt stocks, hand guards, lightening them up, making them heavier, changing cartridges, all that stuff just makes them very versatile for the hunting public. You know, not even discussing the whole, you know, personal safety and, and things like that as far as using them as self-defense. Um, that in itself is a whole nother realm that's very important, but using them in hunting just helps train you for some of this stuff, in my opinion. So anyhow, we did it. And one of the words that they used was, you know, Barmer Magazine is a group of unabashed, you know, hunters out there. And it's true. I loved it. So we're unabashed, we're unashamed, you know, and that's what we do. I mean, yes, we get dinged by social media and I get a lot of grief from people, but it's a legitimate thing that we do. And we help a lot of farmers and ranchers, but that's not the reason why I do it. You know, we do it because it's a legal activity that biologists have deemed necessary to control populations of animals that do a lot of destruction. So I guess I'll use this as a transition to talk about a little bit about ecology and stuff like that. Um, where do you see varmint hunting in, in relation to 
to the numbers that we're seeing in environments and and how to keep those numbers lower because there are realities on the ground with less predators around the environments are able to procreate in mass numbers and obviously we have farms and and cattle farms stuff like that where do you see environment hunting play a role when it comes to balancing the normal levels of varmint population? So there's actually a few, and I'll go in in different sections. So first, let me speak about uh, colony varmints. And we're talking ground squirrels, um, rock chucks, things like that. And these are rodents, you know, the rodent family. And here in the West, a lot of people misunderstand when they're in the East and they hunt tree squirrels, which we do here too, which are edible and people eat them and such. Um, out here, the ground squirrels in Rockchuck are completely different. Um, the closest you have in the east is probably the woodchuck to the Rockchuck, but the ground squirrels that we have are, are absolutely in huge numbers. And with some of the farming that is done nowadays, um, there's one particular place we go that's tens of thousands of acres. And a lot of what they do is raise alfalfa for feed animals. So basically it's feed for animals that's gonna end up on the dinner plate for us. And they try as hard as they can to avoid poison. And for people who don't know, some of the poison that the farmers are forced to use, and I'm not faulting them for using it, sometimes it's the only thing they could do to save their crops. Because we are talking about thousands and thousands of ground squirrels. Um, some of what they use is, one is anticoagulant, that basically the, the squirrels will eat, and then they basically bleed out from the inside. And then the other is, and they just call it poison cabbage. I won't get into the technical stuff of what's being used. And we've just seen the absolute misery that the animals go through when they, they eat this stuff. And what it is is cabbage that's laced with something that doesn't allow them really to digest it. And that's in the most simplest terms. So basically what's happening is they're blowing up inside from gas. And we've been on some farms where we've gone out and walked where they, you know, we just want to check populations before we set up for shooting. And we've come across just ground squirrels that are just, you know, walking, just wobbling, you know, and you can just see they're, they're just not in good shape and the pain is excruciating. So when we step into some of those areas, they like what we do because we try to hunt um, outside of the actual alfalfa. However, when we do shoot in the alfalfa, uh, we pick up everything we can. People ask me all the time, well, why do you pick up? Well, it's twofold. One is some areas we need to, the, the ranchers and farmers ask us to. And two is we use them as proof of what we're doing. You know, if I'm doing a review on a certain cartridge, we've got video, but people actually want to see how does this cartridge perform in the field. And we do that and we're always safe. I have, you know, articles on my website that cover everything you have to do to prevent getting stuff like the plague, which is carried by fleas, which are in these areas, um, as well as other diseases that they carry. But that's one step is going into those areas and doing that. The other one is, you know, to what you're talking about. Uh, one in particular I talk about is a cattle ranch and they have a pasture that along the edge is just covered with rim rock or you know lava rock, basalt, whatever you want to call it. And the rock chucks live in there and they come out and they will actually dig holes in those areas too. And we've come across just some massive holes in some of these areas that the cattle are walking around and you know cattle aren't the smartest things in the world and they're paying attention to, to eating you know all the time. And so we go out there and we do what we have to do to you know keep the rock chucks out of those areas and basically keep them off some of the, you know, the more important crops as well. Cause a lot of these, that one in particular, let me step back to that. That one in particular, they also raise sugar beets. You know, they do other things to help bolster, you know, their revenue that's coming in. And I mean, we have shot rock chucks that were absolutely enormous, you know, going 20 pounds that were dead asleep out in the middle of these fields because they were just gorging themselves on sugar beets. And that's just something that we do also, we remove those. And then the last is uh, going to different is predator hunting. And predator hunting for people who don't understand is necessary. And, you know, I understand all the studies and everything like that, that, oh, if you shoot coyotes in particular, 
uh, you know, their, their birth rate will increase, you know, and they'll have more babies to make up for that. Well, the thing is this, when you've got predators that are running around areas where either there's sheep or feedlots or game animals like, like antelope, you know, where they are absolutely devastating to some of these populations, if you're constantly hunting them um, and keeping their numbers in check and keeping them from growing, you know, you are doing something that will help, you know, the animals will help the environment. And no matter how many more coyotes they have, you know, we can always hunt more. And we've, we have farms over in uh, Northern Nevada that we hunt in particular, where farmers has actually sent us pictures of, you know, their calves that were being born and the coyotes are taking chunks out of the calves as it's coming out. And farmers, to their credit, you know, they work, especially during calving season, I should say ranchers during calving season, they work, you know, unbelievable hours and they're out there trying to care for these animals. They really, really care about their cows and their calves and things like that. And they don't have the time, nor do they have the equipment to set up and go and hunt an area hard to try to remove as many coyotes from an area. So we often get called in and we not only do day calling, we also do night calling and we do, you know, night spotting where we just go through with our thermals and look for them on dead piles and things like that um, and do what we can to get rid of as many as we can. But there is a real push in the West. California already, you know, banned bobcat hunting, which was ridiculous. There's no science behind that. It was all emotion. Um, they banned contests as well. Nevada is constantly on the edge of trying to ban coyote contests. And people say, oh, these are just killing and this and that. Well, of course they are. We're going out and hunting coyotes. Whether it's a contest or not, these guys are going to go out there and do it. This is in our blood. This is what we do. And we go out when there's a contest. And yes, there's large numbers taken. But in those areas that the large numbers are taken, I don't have any science behind it because no one's offering this up. And that's to you and now over there in Nevada, get some, some biologists on this. But I guarantee you the populations of every game animal is increasing in those areas where they take these things out. And it's just something, when you look at some of these contests and guys are coming in and the counts are about 100 coyotes, how many are out there that are not being taken? are not being killed that weekend that are still there and still wary and avoiding hunters or sounds of calls and such like that. They proliferate some of these areas and people just do not understand the numbers and the fact that they need to be controlled. Yeah. When I've, when I've heard from anti hunters in this area, I'm in San Luis Obispo County, California. And a lot of times they mention that coyote, coyote stuff that you're talking about and one thing they don't consider though is like we've already changed forever the ecological system here forever and there's no going back it's not like you can you know take all these people remove them and things are going to go back even if you did hypothetically do that it's still not going to go back i mean this area specifically had uh, los osos for example is named after the bears there's thousands of grizzly bears that they eradicated the spanish um people that settled here all along the California coast. In fact, I used to live near the uh, Los Angeles airport. All along the coast through there is constantly now human coyote interactions. They are in the neighborhoods. You know, they're running through everywhere. And yes, we've encroached on their population centers, but also they're coming off that public land and coming into these neighborhoods because it's easy. You know, there's cats, there's dogs, there's food, there's water, there's everything they need that's readily available. And we've turned it into basically a grocery store for them. And why they do that, you know, is because you have all these people pushing to stop hunting in the outskirts of these areas. I mean, there's certain cities, Irvine is a great example. I have a friend who lives down there and they're in the parks and they're nipping kids and, you know, doing all that stuff and taking out cats and dogs and everything. Yet no one in the public wants to, well, I should say the majority of the public, no one wants to 
do anything to harm the coyotes because in their opinion, we've moved into their areas. Well, that's actually not true, but you know, coyotes are prolific. They were not all over the United States and Canada, you know, hundred years ago. And they've expanded because of what you were talking about, large predators that used to compete with them. And then also, you know, we built up these urban shopping centers for them that they can go visit and do whatever they need to do. So, and that's, you know, to that point, that's this introduction of wolves like we have here in Idaho. The wolves here in Idaho are not the native ones that we had years ago that were decimated. These are from Canada. They're much larger and they're absolutely devastating our elk herd. Devastating. They're changing like you were talking about. They're changing the ecology of how the elk live. And there's some areas of uh, Idaho where the elk have actually moved out of the mountains and they're now living in crop areas. They're living in cornfields. Fishing game has to go in and use snipers to take them out because they won't go back up because they know doing that means death. It means the wolves. So control is definitely necessary. California is for anyone who looks at whether biology works or emotion works. Look at California. California's deer herds are terrible. Um, mountain lion is the reason for that and the protections of the mountain lion. Um, you know, everything that happens there is basically caused by people making bad emotional decisions. And it used to be, when I grew up there, it was a wonderful place to hunt. Wonderful. I mean, you could get drawn for one of the good X zones in Northeastern California, probably like once every two years. Archery tag, you could get over the counter pretty much. I mean, you knew you were going to draw every year for it. Now it's years and years and years before you get drawn because the numbers are so bad. And that's not just the drought that they have there and not just the mismanagement of forests that they have there. It is also their just unequivocal stance with the animal rights people to not use sound biology to set hunting seasons, dates, animals that you can hunt. They go by emotion and emotion destroys animal populations. So in a sense, they're doing more damage than what they assume hunters do. Yeah. And that shame about that too, is that tags give a lot of money towards preservation, at least on the back end through official channels. So that's a, that's a shame. Um, transitioning a little bit here. What are your thoughts on air guns and how do you talk about air guns with other people? So like I stated earlier, um, I grew up shooting the Daisy 880. So 177, I actually used pellets. I didn't use um, BBs, which was one of the cool things about that. And I mean, my first game bird kill was a quail with that. And it just opened up a new world for me and got me started in all this. You know, obviously, as I got older, I transitioned more to firearms. But, you know, it was always there you know, always the air gun stuff. So I, I got back into it using a Beeman R9 in 20 caliber. And I did ground squirrels and rabbits and pigeons and quail. And, and ironically, one of the reasons why I did it was because of the lead-free zones in California and air guns are not part of that. So you could hunt with lead pellets in areas that were lead-free for, you know, firearm projectiles. So that taught me that one of the things to explain to people, to bring them into this, you know, assuming they want to get into it. And most people I talk to do, I mean, air guns are a realm in itself when it comes to just the, the base of people that are obsessed with them. And I say obsessed because you get one, you can't just have one. You want to get more and more. Well, new people getting into it, they want to start with something that can effectively, you know, kill game. So it's powerful. More importantly, it's accurate um, and something that they can step into at, at not a huge price point, but something that's getting them on the ground floor, especially like PCPs. So what I explain to people is this, is I say, listen, and a lot of these folks are from somewhat urban areas or, you know, on the outskirts. So I explained to them that Aragon's open an entirely new set of areas that they can hunt. 
where you knock on the door and speak to a farmer, you know, or a rancher or whatever, which I, I still do to this day. And I'm 54 years old. I've been doing this for 40 years and I still do that. You knock on the door and you say, listen, I'd like to shoot X, Y, Z. Um, if you're saying that you're using an air gun and the thing that I found the most, especially, you know, the older farmers, ranchers, uh, dairy owners, things like that, is you let them shoot it and they see that it's accurate, that it's quiet. You will almost always get permission on these areas. And that's been my experience. And it just opens doors. So what I tell people who are getting into, it, I said, number one, get something that is within your budget, you know, and that includes not only the rifle, but also an optic, a good optic, and basically something that can get you started. So, you know, when I talk about some of these things, springers are great. I'm going PCP just because everybody kind of graduates to PCPs. So something like the Marauder or, you know, some of those things in there is always a great first step and you get into it and you hand it to a beginner. And I think the most important thing with the beginner is they have to know and experience the fact that it works, that it's accurate. They don't want to sit down and shoot and it's all over the place. And, and yes, that's, that's directed towards, you know, the, the air guns out there that are sold at your local, you know, big box stores that they brag about a bronze pellet going, you know, whatever, 1400 feet per second. Well, you know, accuracy is more important. So when I, when I speak to someone who's new, I sit them down and I explain to them not only expanding or opening up hunting opportunities, but to look at something that is going to be accurate, is going to be powerful enough, is going to do the job. So you're not out there and making a mess when you're doing it. I don't know if that answers the question. I Yeah, definitely. Um, so do you do any big game hunting at all? Um, I do. I'm, I've been known, however, that California is a perfect example. I had a X9A tag and I was up there at grade zone and uh, went through there and was looking for deer and came across a valley filled with rock chucks. And I hiked a mile back to my vehicle and picked up my um, rimfire at the time and hiked back in and spent the rest of the day and the rest of my deer hunt hunting rock chucks. So what's, what's the attraction to the, the smaller game? I mean, obviously you have it. So why, why has that attraction always been there specifically for that size game? You know, for me, it's just something where it's relaxing. It's enjoyable. It it's, you know, and I, and I'm not your typical varmint hunter when I say varmint. Hunter. Yes, there are times when I'm sitting at a bench and I'm around friends and we're just having a blast and we're spotting for each other and we're, you know, we're doing filming and all that stuff. It, it's, it's great. It's really nice. And it's just a great way to spend a morning. Um, but there's the other part of me that absolutely loves getting into areas that have been untouched or into areas that are just gorgeous, you know, where you're hunting in areas that just feed your, your brain as much as your, you know, satisfaction to be able to hunt and get some numbers down and things like that. So back to big game though. Um, yes, I do. In fact, I was approached years ago by Derek Fong, um, who's a friend of mine from California who works for fishing game up here in Idaho and the fishing game, um, main guy at the time. And they said, listen, we want, to try to get air guns, big bore air guns approved for big game here in Idaho. So it was a great opportunity and I learned a lot. Um, I leaned on a lot, Kip Perot down there of air guns of Arizona, just a, this guy's hunted all over the States. He's hunted Africa with big bore air guns and he knows his stuff when it comes to that. So he actually air guns of Arizona, you know, said, Hey, he can go up. He came up. He actually sat with the fishing game commission at the range. We brought out ballistic gelatin. We were comparing it to a suppressed subsonic 308, which his Western Bushbuck 45 caliber outperformed the 308 in ballistic gelatin and just basically laid out all the information to do that. And we had companies like, you know, air guns of Arizona, obviously donated some stuff as well. Air force, you know, Yvette down there sent us some guns. In fact, Fishing Game still has one of the 
Air Force guns that they still use in training and, you know, on some of these open house days to show people what it can do. And it was approved. I mean, we've got some pushback from traditional hunters here who don't quite understand, but we, as part of what we did, we recommend certain, you know, foot pounds of energy for certain game. And then the calibers, it's 35 for, you know, up to deer, things like that, antelope deer, and then 45 for elk and other big game. So to Idaho Fishing Games credit, they really did take the time to sit down and look at it and decide that, okay, we're going to follow the advice given to us by Kip, by myself, and by a few others, and follow that guideline and do this. And Idaho, pretty much anything in the state you can hunt, other than obviously migratory game birds, but you can hunt with air guns. And it's really expanded everything. So in answer to your question for big game, I put in for big game, I put in for tough zones. And those are areas that if I do get drawn, which I haven't put in in the last two years, just because I've had other things putting on. But this year, if I get drawn, I'm definitely going after big game, but I'm going to use a big bore air gun. So for me, it's the challenge. Yeah, the the Bush Book 45, I bought that. I saw it perform at EBR and uh, just an amazing gun. So I bought one that week, actually. I just came back home. Yeah, it's a great gun. And there's a difference between i mean again that's that's a, a competitive level instead of out in the field but you do see the you do see the, some of the other guns fail um at performing at different distances and what they're able to do when it comes to energy and hitting gongs and stuff like that so it was illustrative of what what that gun could do and it was pretty amazing so yeah great gun and that's really really cool about idaho by the way oh yeah and to follow up on what you're saying probably the best thing that happened that day with the fishing game commissioners was they sat down in the cold, in the wind, and they were shooting that bush buck out at 200, 300 yards and hitting that gong and getting that report, even with the wind and everything like that, it just, I, you could see people understanding, you know, they they were grasping the technology and understanding that, yes, this is viable. And so they passed it, you know, which is great. Yeah, Max Fennell and I currently are working on trying to coax the California Wildlife Commission to to allow big game hunting. So I think we're going to be working on that for a while, but it's a shot in the dark, but still still one that should be taken regardless of whether it can pass or not. But from my understanding, it's just a director here and the commission itself that makes the ruling. So it doesn't actually go between a legislative body and the, I think the commission here is pro pretty pro hunt hunting. It's largely made up of people that actually do hunt. So if there could be a hearing where someone like Mitch King can come along and maybe illustrate with some of these numbers, it, I think it has a chance to actually pass. So just because it's California, I think people haven't really given it a good college try, but it'd be worthwhile to do so. Yeah. And California is an ideal state for air guns. It really is just the way, you know, the population is laid out and the areas and things like that it is. And for big game, I just think that would expand hunting opportunities and maybe bring some people into the fold that don't necessarily want to jump through all the hoops for a firearm. So what are you working on in the next, let's say year, two years, what's kind of your mission going to be? when it comes to the magazine and when it comes to you personally, what you're, what are you looking to accomplish? Well, um, a lot of things have changed, you know, and this goes for any magazine, whether it be print online, you know, any YouTube channel, anything like that. And what has changed is companies don't really need us anymore. And when I say they don't need us anymore with the whole buying frenzy and, you know, everybody trying to, get as much as they can. I, I mean, I've spoken to companies that have said, you know, listen, we've had a certain shotgun that sat in our warehouse, hundreds and hundreds of units that never moved for years and suddenly we're out because people are buying as much as they can. Now, will that slow down with the economy slowdown? Probably, but it still puts us in a position where companies don't really need us. You know, they don't need to hand guns out to, you know, all of us out there and tell us to go out and use it and do this or that. So they've been very selective as far as who they use. And one thing that we do that 
you know, it's different in our industry, but we don't take money or advertising or anything like that from companies that we're doing a review for. So if we're actually getting a rifle in and doing a review, um, whether it be an air gun or anything out there, we don't do that. We just think it's a conflict of interest. So a lot of Barmer now is just self-funded by me, you know, by other businesses I run and, you know, t-shirt sales and things like that through the site. But as far as moving forward because of that, before, you know, before I step into that, let me just explain a real quick story. So Savage, for example, last year, um, we got a hold of, was it last year? Yes, I believe it was last year. So we got a hold of one of their uh, Savage Impulse, which is a straight pull rifle that was new um, that came out. So they got us one of those along with a whole bunch of other people. We used it. We shot it, loaded for it, did a lot of barma hunting, coyote hunting. Absolutely loved it. It was an accurate gun. It did well. Um, had everything in the can, article written, video edited, ready to go. And then we waited and the gun wasn't being released and it wasn't being released. And then slowly by fall, it, they started to trickle out here and there. So we actually held our information, our stuff until the end of the year. We felt we just had to do it in December because we felt there would be another push at this latest SHOT Show in January. Um, so we went ahead and released it and such like that. But the big issue that people are having is getting a hold of guns that are coming out that are new. You know, the CZ 600, which is a replacement or try to be replacement for the CZ-527 was something that was anticipated, waited for, and finally released. But they, they also are trickling out. And there's a whole other situation with that that I won't get into. But it leads us to two things that we're working on. Number one, what do we already have that we can use for Barma hunting? And that goes with, you know, you look in your closet and or look in your gun safe and you have a 6.5 Creedmoor or you have a 22 Magnum or something like that, that you've kind of put away because of all the new and latest, you know, things out there. The 243 is a perfect example of that. It's been eclipsed by the 6mm Creedmoor, the 6 Arc, but the 243 is an excellent round. That cartridge was way before its time. You know, in the 6.5 world, you have the 6.5 Creedmoor and the 6.5 PRC. Well, if you go back and look at things like the 6.5 Swede, you'll again see a cartridge that was way before its time. So part of our focus is going to be going into our gun safes, you know, going into our closets and pulling out guns that people probably have, but they haven't used in a while. And I'm a big fan of older guns. I shoot a lot of unique cartridges. And so we're going to focus on a lot of that stuff. That's number one. Number two, um, air gun stuff. Air guns, thankfully, have not seen, I mean, I know they have, there's been some shortages on stuff, but they have not seen the absolute, you know, unavailability of rifles and ammo and things like that out there that most people have seen in the firearm world. And air gun companies, even with the fact that they are selling a lot, they're constantly innovating and coming out with new cool stuff. So one of the things we do is we do work with Air Guns of Arizona and they get us rifles that we can use and get out in the field and things like that. And we're just going to focus more on, on that stuff as well and educating people on, on all, all ends of the price spectrum. Um, you know, things from what I think is probably the best, if you can afford it, but the best starter PCP air gun out there is probably for hunting is the Daystate Huntsman. I just believe that, you know, I have an old XL 22 caliber, um, you know, the Revere that came out. It's just a fantastic little rifle. And it's got that classic, the classic walnut and the lines and everything like that. But I'm a buy once, cry once guy. If I'm going to afford something, you know, that's seven, $800, I'm going to try to push more and get something a little bit, you know, a little bit more expensive that checks all my boxes that I don't have to look at my gun with regret and say, Oh, I wish, you know, I would have got this and that. So things like that. And I mean, there's a list of stuff that Daystay has. The Brococks are just excellent. You know, obviously you've got air force. Um, you know, we love air arms. 
you know, the, the ladies over at Air Arms over there in the UK, it's, the S510 is a great rifle. But Air Guns of Arizona carries a whole bunch of stuff. And some of the things we're looking at for the future are the caliber guns that are now coming back out. Um, I loved caliber guns, you know, a decade ago. And I love their technology. I love their look. They were so far ahead of so many other companies when it came to, you know, layouts of their air guns, their bullpups. You know, the Cricket was one of the first viable bullpups out there. And, you know, that's stuff that we're going to look at as well. Um, and then basically expanding air gun education as well. Just teaching people more about air guns. And there's already great information out there, but I'm hitting a market of people who normally shoot firearms. So the majority of the people who read my articles, watch my videos, you know, visit us on social media and do all that are firearm owners. So as we expand, you know, into air guns slowly, but surely and do more, we're bringing in a completely new segment of people who maybe not paid attention to air guns at the time. So that's another one we're looking at. And then we're going to be looking more also at affordable um, firearms in the future. And that we're going to focus on rimfires probably more than anything. And just look at what's out there in the price points that folks can afford because hard times are coming, you know, and it's just something that we do. We're, we're like everybody else. I save up when I buy guns. I sell other guns to buy guns. You know, there's... One of the big splurges I made a couple of years ago was an LCS Air Arms, the Full Auto 25, which love that gun. Kip, again, from Air Guns of Arizona came up. We did some ground screw and rock check hunting. He brought one with him. I fell in love with it because not only is it fun, but it's accurate and love that. You know, and, and then, you know, next on my list that I really want to get is probably one of the Brococks. You know, I love like the Commander XR Magnum, the side lever. So, you know, we're like anybody else out there. We don't get handed rifles and pat on the back and say, there you go, enjoy it, keep it. We keep these things for, you know, we try to push for six months, but 60 to 90 days is most of the time the max. Um, that affects us in a lot of ways because, you know, we're hunters. And if something doesn't work out when we go hunting one day, that pushes us back to the next time we go out and the next time. And then we run out of time. And one of the big things that we do is we want to have it in our hand and out in the field as much as possible before we give our opinion on it. Yeah, the huntsman that you reference is like the good old workhorse of their gutted industry. It, just, it is. such a good gun. It absolutely is. Um, but I was going to segue really quick, talking about the caliber gun. Did you happen to go to SHOT Show? Yes, I was there. I saw them. Did you see the semi-auto? I did. And it's funny because one of the biggest air gun videos we had uh, – you know, 10 years ago or stuff was the Calibri, which was their initial semi-auto that was going to be coming out that here in the United States, it never came out. Um, I'm hoping that that semi-auto is just as good as some of the other ones that are out there. I believe it will be. I think Caliber Gun, you know, I know the folks there and I've known them for years. I think they really pay attention to their workmanship. So not having one in hand yet, um, I have very high hopes for it. Yeah, they, uh, they're great guns. I mean, it's really well-built. People forget that they're from Russia originally, too, but what are they in the Czech Republic now? I believe so, yeah. So, um, they are just, I mean, they, I guess it's just the, kind of the Russian essence in the, in the history of the gun, but they're just really, they're tanks. You know, you hold them and you're, you go, wow, these things are really well built. Um, segwaying again, just for SHOT Show and for the people listening, what has your experiences been over the years with SHOT Show, just from a varmint perspective? Um, well, we started going again in 1997 when they used to have it everywhere. 97 or 98, I believe 97. Anyways, where they used to hold it everywhere. They used to move it, Florida, et cetera. Well, this last year, and if you were there, you knew this. Um, this last year in Vegas, a lot of people bowed out. A lot of the companies bowed out. Um, I think it was a shame because SHOT Show has always been the place where companies can announce things, where you can actually talk to people and such. But at the same time, everybody's moving to either the Harrisburg Show, show in Pennsylvania or the NRA meeting. And I think companies are understanding the need to release things or bring out new things where their actual customers can handle these things. 
So this last SHOT Show for us, in comparison to the past when it comes to barmining, was pretty disappointing. You know, we had a few companies out there that, you know, are definitely gung-ho on the barma hunting stuff. And they're coming out with cool stuff, whether it be ammunition or projectiles or, you know, rifles and such that are geared towards the barma hunting community. But nothing like the heyday of, you know, I, I can't even explain to you what it was like walking in the SHOT Show, you know, the year the 17 HMR was released. You know, the heyday of the rimfire stuff, which was completely geared towards varmint and small game hunting. Those were the days, you know, companies were falling all over themselves to release. Remington, you know, at the time back then, were releasing varmint hunting rifles, you know, in the mid to early 90s. They were coming out with 17 Remingtons and 220 Swifts and 22 250s and all this stuff geared towards us. Well, now, unfortunately, varmint hunting has taken a backseat to a lot of the match shooting, you know, the PRS stuff, the NRL, you know, all that, which, you know, I understand that that's very popular and I get that, but they're missing, I believe they're missing a huge segment of people who spend money. You know, Varma hunters, we, this is what I like to say when people ask, you know, we spend a lot of money on optics, rifles, you know, ammunition, hand loading, all that stuff to make sure that we are doing the best we can at the range, meaning the best accuracy, and then converting that to in the field where we are basically causing an animal's death, but doing it in the most efficient way possible where the animal most of the time doesn't even know. I mean, we're not out there to wound. We're not out there to, you know, plink. We're not out there to hold on fur, pull the, the trigger. Every varmint hunter that I know is out there to basically make sure that what they're doing is the cleanest kill possible and, you know, do the, the right thing basically is how I look at it. So I really wish companies out there would go back and focus. There's some ammunition companies out there that used to be, they were built on varmint hunters and they basically forgotten about us. And it's a shame. And these are same with, projectile companies you know there's some out there that i understand you know you have to crank out these match bullets because that's what's going on but at the same time they miss the entire spring varmint shooting and left us high and dry and i think hornady you know nasser to some extent burger also have you know they've stepped up you know they've still supply bullets quietly you know have made them they're not out there bragging they just fill those shelves up uh, but there's other ones out there that have just missed about miss a boat and turn a lot of people away from them. And it's just sad to see. So I don't know what the future holds for Varma hunters, you know, when it comes to all this stuff, but I'm hoping shot shows come up in the future where there's companies that say, listen, this is what we got for you. And ironically, you know, they're missing out on a lot of money. You know, there's, there's a lot of these, like the Remington 700s. I know they're coming back under new ownership and all that stuff. But how many clone Remington 700 actions are out there that gear towards target shooters as well as varmint hunters? You know, barrel makers, they still supply barrels for us out there. And most of these things that are made for target shooters and these new releases like the Six Arc and, you know, the Six Creedmoor and some of those things like that, these are guns that are perfect for varmint hunting if the barrel twist weight was correct and if projectiles and or ammunition was available in, you know, such a form that was good for varmint hunting. For people that are interested in varmint hunting or even just, let's say, the regular, let's say, dad that wants to take his son out um, and his son doesn't know anything about it, his dad doesn't know anything about it, what would be your recommendation for the new person going into that, that sport? Well, the best thing about varmint hunting is you can do it with anything. So a lot of these new varmint hunters, I say to them, listen, what's, when they call me up or I talk to them via private message or whatever, what's in your gun safe? What do you have right now? Do you have a 22? You know, do you have a, you know, who, who knows a 243, a 6.5 Creedmoor, you know, whatever you can use that. So the number one thing I say is you don't have to go out initially and spend a ton of money. If you don't have something, step out and buy yourself a rimfire. You know, some of this you know, the best shooting rimfires out there are only a few hundred dollars. You don't need to go, 
you know, all out and spend all this money to when you first get into this stuff. And small game varmints is perfect for kids. Out where I'm at, I have a lot of BLM land that holds ground squirrels in the springtime. And there's families out there with their kids and they're shooting and they're doing everything. It is an excellent way to do it because what I do when I take new shooters out or kids out, and one of the things I have in my on my street, any of the kids on my street who go and take the hunter safety course and pass the test, I give them through their parents, I give them a Ruger 1022. And that gets them started. And I give them a box of ammo. And then we go out. And sitting down at a bench in an area where it's safe to shoot, where you have numerous targets, because kids, you know, they're used to things that are right there, you know, video games, things like that. It's it's that immediate action that they need. Well, Varma Honey is perfect for that. And you sit them down, you're in a controlled environment, and you can basically teach them everything they need to know. And at the same time, when they have their hunting license, they can take out animals and do what they need to do to enjoy a day out and make it a passion. And it is, it is that you take a kid out deer hunting and granted love deer hunters, love deer hunting and all that. But if you're hiking them around the mountains for four days and they're not getting a shot and they're just bored out of their mind, they're a lot of times, next time you ask, you're going to say, no, nah, it's cool. I don't really want to do that. But you get them out varmint or small game hunting and there's, you know, targets everywhere and they're getting a shoot. They come home excited for the next trip. So in a nutshell, what I tell dads, moms, you know, even kids that are older that are getting into it, you know, go out and do some research. Yes, you can ask, but try to do as much research on your own and find spots on your own and get out there and in a controlled environment shooting from a you know, stable location, teach your kid everything they need to know about gun safety all the way up to hunting and then the reason why they're doing it. And it's simple. Everywhere out there has an opportunity for small game or varmint. Everywhere. That's awesome. All right. Well, Eric, is there any last words you'd like to give the audience? Um, just basically, and this is just advice for doing this for 40 years and working with a lot of new people and, you know, educating and doing all that stuff is, you know, be kind to other hunters out there. You know, the young hunters literally are our future. And I know that sounds cliche, but they are. As people grow up and they grow up into hunting and such, and we get older and we start to phase out, these are the people that need to understand why we do this, number one. And they need to be able to get out there and get information so they can go out and have an enjoyable day and just continue on with everything we do. And it gets a little harsh out there on social media. Just step back a little bit and try to remember when you were new and people who were mentors helped you. And that's the only advice I can give. And can you give the audience a direction on where they can find you socially and, and your website, obviously, and how they can support you? Sure. So our website is varminter.com, and that's V as in Victor, A-R-M-I-N-T-E-R.com. And then on social media, we're Varminter Magazine. And I do most of my stuff on Instagram because it's still pretty open to us posting some of the pictures we do and things like that. And as far as supporting us, you know, get over on our site, read the articles, do some searches for some of the articles, because we do to this day, spend time to put together concise articles that where we cannot fit that information into a three, five or eight minute video. Um, those just always seem rushed. And then you can find us on YouTube, Barmer Magazine, and subscribe to us there and all that. And as far as supporting us, you know, I'm not looking for people to to go out of their way or anything, but you know, we do sell products on smallcaliberstore.com. And as far as the main support I look for, just get on there and share us and talk about us and ask us questions. You know, I love answering questions from people who just really want to know. They want to dig into this. So that's pretty much it. All right. Well, Eric, thank you very much for coming on the Atlas Eric on this podcast. You're always welcome back on, and this has been very informative. So just thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Atlas Air Guns podcast. Make sure to like with a five-star rating, share, and subscribe. Have a question? Email atlasairguns at gmail.com.